0: Baseball buffet has started. Step up to the plate and get on the buffet line.
1: Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and cracker jacks. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. Well, it's one, two, three strikes. You're out at the old ball game.
0: Welcome to Baseball Buffet, our monthly roundtable focusing on recent baseball events. We'll work our conversation in and around our luncheon at the Zoom Cafe, our online meeting space where we shelter in place. Today we look at what might be changing and what might stay the same in the coming 2021 Major League season, starting with the baseball itself. Then on to our ever-humble evaluations of which teams won and which teams lost the off we will end our day Zoom dining with our last bites. Our buffet of baseball commentators include...
2: Andy Jeff Ione.
0: Award-winning photographer and former image master of the Chicago Cubs.
3: Tom Henninger.
0: Editor at Baseball Digest and author of Tony Oliva, The Life and Times of the Minnesota Twins legend. Chuck Hildebrand, Award-winning baseball researcher and chair emeritus of Sabres Baseball and the Media Research Committee. Stuart Shea. Author of Wrigley Field, The Long Life in Contentious Times of the Friendly Confines. I'm your host, Jim Walker, author of Crack of the Bat, A History of Baseball on the Radio. Before we get into our main topics, let's take a moment and just reflect on the passing of one of the truly great baseball players of all time, and that would be Henry Aaron. Uh, Tom, any thoughts?
3: Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's career home run record comes to mind, and I can't help but think about how he was targeted with hate for doing his job and being one of the best at it because of race. The horrible letters and death threats he received came at a time he should have been celebrated as one of the best ever put on a uniform. As Tom Stanton noted in his book about Aaron's pursuit of Ruth, Aaron acknowledged that the threats were probably idle and innocuous, but could he be sure? After all, Martin Luther King and President Kennedy and RFK had been assassinated in the previous decade. Aaron admitted himself that he had considered quitting, talking to a friend in Matt's outfielder Cleon Jones, and telling Jones that he was worn up by the constant barrage of opposition and was sick of living in a prison. But he considered his pursuit with the same quiet dignity as Jackie Robinson had nearly three decades earlier. And I take comfort seeing him honored and so beloved nearly fifty years after his pursuit of a statistical record had generated so much rage.
1: Stu? I had just turned 11 when Aaron broke Babe Ruth's record in April 1974. I admired Aaron, even if I didn't root for the Braves, and it really seemed awful when I learned that he got hate mail. My fifth-grade gym teacher told our class that he had sent Aaron a congratulatory telegram after number 715, and this made a deep impression on me. Uh, You know, here's an adult who did a little something to counteract bad behavior. While Aaron Tomer and Chase showed me that there was a lot more hate in the world that I knew... The 47 years since that have only deepened my respect for Aaron's resolve and his determination. Andy?
2: Henry Hammer and Hank Aaron ended his playing career October 3rd, 1976 with the Milwaukee Brewers, long before I was able to appreciate him and his accomplishments. I was three years old. So for me, Henry Aaron was always a mythical figure, one that I would first see in books at the library and later on This Week in Baseball like the most famous clip of him in a Braves uniform, rounding the bases, awkwardly being greeted by strangers, then teammates, reporters, and his family after breaking up the once holy grail of baseball records, which had been untouched for over three decades. His low-key demeanor always struck me, especially when I grew up and learned about the horrendous things he dealt with, not only as a ball player, but as a human being. His post-playing career as an entrepreneur, a mentor, and a baseball ambassador were equally impressive, a true Hall of Famer in many respects.
1: Chuck?
4: Well, I remember watching him live on NBC's Monday Night Baseball and, and feeling so excited that I was watching this guy in my lifetime break arguably the most hallowed record in baseball, the big 714. I wasn't so aware of the racial animus he was experiencing at the time, but I was aware of how Bowie Kuhn was jerking Hank Aaron around, saying when he could and could not play in order to make him break the the record at home. I was just 12 at the time. But even then, I knew it was kind of icky, you know, the way Bowie Kuhn felt he had to put his ugly thumbprint all over that whole thing. But I will share this amazing baseball fact about Hank Aaron that I don't think gets mentioned nearly enough. If you were to remove all of Hank Aaron's home runs, every single one of them, he would still have over 3,000 lifetime hits. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. His finishing total was 37.71. That's still good for third of all time. And in this age of 3 true outcomes where strikeouts run amok have eaten away at batter's uh, hit totals, uh, there's no one on the horizon I see who's going to even come close to breaking this. That just shows what a complete hitter he was and not just a home
2: run freak. Yeah.
0: Well, let's move on to the 2021 Major League season. What curve balls are coming down the pike this year? Let's start with the ball itself. Chuck, you're our expert who's always (laughs) on the ball. What changes are on the drawing board?
4: Yeah, okay. Well, this is a drum I've been banging for several years. I presented at Sabre, Society for American Baseball Research, the convention three years ago about how baseball should change the ball to deaden it and reduce spin in order to reduce swing and miss and get more balls in play. And this looks like this is a step toward that goal. What baseball is planning for is to center the ball within a tighter range of variance, which would reduce the bounciness of the ball off the bat. So even as the ball itself will be about a tenth of an ounce lighter and testing has shown if an old ball is hit 375 feet, this new ball will go one or two feet less, which doesn't sound like much, but it should be enough to reduce the home run rate by about 5%. Now. Will this be enough? Because if it's all about getting more balls in play, just reducing home runs is only half the equation. The other half is making it easier for batters to make solid contact in the first place. Right. My hypothesis is a key reason Strikeouts has gone way up is that pitchers are afraid of giving up home runs because all nine guys in the batting order can do that in today's game. So pitchers do everything they can to elicit swing and miss on every pitch to every batter, and not just to the middle of the order in these high-leverage situations. Uh, because home runs are now likely at any moment, and giving up a home run is the worst thing that can happen to a pitcher. And it seems pretty obvious to me that batter behavior, the live ball-induced, won't be changed at all to start with. Because just because MLB says the ball is going to be done, we won't actually know that it will be until we're well into the season. So hitters are still going to be all in on launch angle. And only once it becomes apparent that the fly balls are no longer resulting in the home runs will batters begin to modify their swings for more line drives. And some of them, the older ones especially, never will. But either way, none of that will happen this year at all. That's a multiple-year change that's going to start in 2022 at the earliest. So we're in danger of another 2014-type season again. Home run and strikeout rates were setting league records every year before that. But all of a sudden, the 2014 home runs were reduced dramatically. But strikeouts were not. That set another record. So what happened? Scoring craters. Lowest level since the early 1970s. And nobody liked that, at least of all baseball, who saw their number one marketing tool reduced to unsustainably low levels while fans professed to be bored out of their minds. So the $64 question at hand is, will baseball have the gumption, the will to stick with the dead ball and fewer homers, even as strikeouts continue to rise and pitchers still seek to overwhelm hitters in every pitch? Because when they see scoring crater this year, if they're really serious about more balls in play, they may have to accept that short-term pain
0: Okay, well, Stu, what about the 2021 schedule? Is everything seems to be proceeding as if there's none of this virus thing? I can't even remember the name of it. (laughs) Does that make sense to you?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, (laughs) Baseball is uh, sending its players to Arizona and Florida, two states with some of the worst coordinated responses against COVID, but no big deal. Uh, Some people react to any nervousness about COVID by bellowing that no players have died from it as if death was the only problem that covid causes Mm -hmm. now players are going to be tested and protected at all costs because the games and the income generation can't go on without them but what about everybody else if fans come back the beer vendors and the scouts and the people at food stands and the ticket takers the radio engineer and the cameraman and the writers and the people who have to pick up and wash the players dirty laundry and the fans themselves the nba and the nhl are canceling games hand over fist out of concern for players health And their unions aren't even as strong as MLBs. What's going to happen this year when some player or club or team employee breaks curfew or somebody close to them engages in risky behavior? We've got a 162-game season planned, and even a few canceled games are really going to screw everything up. Until vaccines are rolled out, I don't think we should be in such a big hurry to get back to normal because we have to wait and see what the new normal is. Right.
2: Absolutely.
0: Tom, I know you love the extra inning rule from last summer, and it looks like it's going to continue. Uh, Why?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, putting a runner on second base to start every half inning after the ninth is back in play. And you're right, as much as I dislike the rule giving us – two-run leadoff homers and pitchers taking losses despite not putting the winning run on base but I do understand the notion in this year trying to reduce on field time for players and that conceivably reduces the exposure to COVID-19. I'm fine with it 2021 but I do feel that the COVID protocols are going to be this catalyst for making this a permanent rule and and to that I say crap so yeah
0: (laughs) This seemed to be something that was actually pretty popular with the people playing the game, the players themselves, kind of kind of like this. Am I misreading that?
3: No, an awful lot of uh, writers are actually weighing in and liking it and saying it, it creates new strategy and does it really change things unless hitters start going the other way or start bunting to take advantage of that guy on second base? But I don't think we saw much of that last year, and I'm surprised.
1: A, a ton of writers have spoken up and said they like this because they can get to the bar earlier if the games end sooner. There you go.
0: Andy, what about those seven-inning doubleheaders? Uh, That's yeah. great. Let's play three. Yep. That's only 21 yeah. innings. <laughs> oh, That's a little more than two games. So seven-inning yeah. doubleheaders, uh, why are they still here?
2: Well, yes, indeed. Those doubleheaders will again be a Set of seven-inning contests, a big push to bring back the shortened doubleheaders was in direct response to last season that saw 45 postponed games due to COVID-related reasons with just two that weren't made up. But in order to accomplish making up all these games, there were 56 doubleheaders, the most since 1984 when there were 76 twin bills. Mm -hmm. So you ask yourself, Even with this 162-game push, keeping the seven-inning doubleheaders, it's sort of like a fail-safe, like, just in case we have to make up a bunch of games, let's have this in place. And then there's also the protection of pitching staffs. There's definitely a layer of that. The backbone of it is, hey, if we have to make up a bunch of games, this is a realistic way to try to do it.
4: I wonder how we'll regard
1: those games in the record book.
0: Yeah, particularly for things like no hitters and perfect games mm-hmm. and things like that. That's
1: weren't a couple two mm-hmm. or three of Bauer's complete games last year, seven inning games. Yes, I yeah, think I seem I think to remember at least that. Two, yeah. Yeah. that like, mm-hmm. you know, he was Why getting not? credit for doing something he really didn't quite do. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But technically he did. That. Yeah, technically yeah, uh, he yeah. did. But right. it doesn't really prove
3: anything. Sure.
4: Yeah. Um, no, you're right.
3: Well, these two rules just seem wrong-headed as long-term solutions. I mean, MLB seems to be operating under the premise that less time at the ballpark is a good thing. Right. And I think if you have more balls in play, I think you have a lot fewer fans talking about the length of games or we just want to see more play on the field. I think that's the issue here.
0: Well, pitchers and catchers are reporting, and it's time for us to report back to our buffet lines for our luncheon refill. Back in a burp. (laughs) We're back. Just a quick reminder that Baseball Buffet is available on most top podcast providers, including Apple iTunes, Google Play, and many more. Amazon Echo users can access our podcast, Lickety Split. Just say, Alexa, play Baseball Buffet on iTunes. With spring training underway, it's time to analyze who won and who lost the off season. As we all know, that determines the outcome, so we don't even have to play the games. Uh, Andy? Andy? <laughs> <laughs> Who's gonna be the winner in the National League East because they won the offseason?
2: All right. Well, in terms of win and lose, let's look to the prognosticators. Overall, Mets and Braves are favorites to win the division. A fan graphs and baseball prospectus have Mets taking the division and the good old sports book, Bet M G M has the Braves finishing and giving forty. So, you know, it looks like if key players stay healthy, it could be a really competitive division with four teams likely finishing over 500. Mets have momentum with the myriad of off-season acquisitions. Just to name a few, you've got Francisco Lindor, Carlos Carrasco, James McCann, Trevor May, and I mean, that's just, just a few. So if they can just stay healthy, stay focused, keep on the right path, they could really take this division. However, as we know, History has not been on their side, and a collapse is always right around the corner. And Atlanta's got good chemistry, punctuated with Ozuna staying around, and they're building on this winning momentum that they've had the last three seasons. But their biggest problem might be that the teams around them are getting better, and how they handle their pitching is going to be crucial, especially after this shortened season. So adding veterans like Charlie Morton, Drew Smiley, certainly helps, yet they need a healthy Mike Soroko. And my good old Phillies, they're projected to be in the middle or fourth, and even additions like Archie Bradley, Jose Alvarado, and Brendan Kinsler should help them hopefully not be the worst bullpen in the National League again, but... There's always the butt with their bullpen. And JT Riamuto and Didi Gregorius coming back, that's another bright spot. But, again, will it be enough to break out of this really talented division? Tom,
0: what about your favorite division, the AL Centro? Go Sox! Never mind.
3: (laughs) Well, only the White Sox and the Twins made a concerted effort to get better in 2021. And it's a shame to see the other three clubs lose even more ground with little chance to compete. But the truth is that's more the norm than the exception this offseason. Every division is sort of suffering through this. Consider the two best teams in the AL West, Oakland and Houston, don't both let people walk and did almost nothing to prove. Got to ask, who the hell wants to win the AL West? I think the White Sox really were the biggest players, and they added Inning Zeter Lance Lynn in a trade to fortify the rotation. Now, he's been very solid the last couple of years in Texas, and uh, they also added Adam Eaton, a former Sox player, and former twin Liam Hendricks to be their closer. We have found that signing closers to big money deals has been hit and miss over the years, and the Twins countered by signing Alex Colomay, who had been terrific <laughs> at the Sox closer the last two years and of course he came a hell of a lot cheaper than uh, Hendricks did uh, the twins also added one of the game's best defensive shortstops in Andrelton Simmons they re-signed Nelson Cruz and signed Jay Happ to replace Jake Odorizzi in the rotation and so I'm kind of thinking we're going to have a terrific race in the Central this summer hope so
0: and you, you're really thinking the bottom three or the predicted bottom three anyway really just didn't do much of anything right
3: yeah, not a lot. Uh, kind of interesting to see if Ben Intendi ends up kind of coming around and finding his way, uh, you know, his, his prime years with the Royals instead of the Red Sox, uh, Detroit's just kind of an ongoing building process and they weren't going to make any big moves this year we knew that so Cleveland well they've been bailing and trying to cut the salary Uh, a year ago they kind of did what the Cubs did this year and it continued with Lindor going and Carrasco going so yeah um, you know looks like most of those teams are still looking to rebuild and not really do a hell of a lot until 2022 or later.
0: Well, keeping it in the central part of the country, uh, Chuck, what do you think about the NL Central? Very tight race in 2020. Any teams that sort of broke from the pack, either up or down?
4: The initial media hot take had St. Louis locking down the division when they picked up Nolan Arenado, but... As it turns out, the Cardinals have a lot of holes in their other areas. They lost Dexter Fowler, which may not be alarming all by itself, but it did leave a black hole in right field to take over from him. That's actually going to be worse. They're committing to another year of a superannuated Yadier Molina. They hope there's another magic year somewhere in him. And uh, Colton Wong, in his top-of-the-order skills, moved across the division to Milwaukee. So that's a double whammy since the Card's own loss is a division rival's gain. So I wouldn't call St. Louis the biggest movers because of the Nolan deal necessarily. Now, the Cubs, they moved a, a big name themselves, a guy who almost won a, a Cy Young last year, Hugh Darvish, trading him to San Diego. They did get back Zach Davies. Zach Davies, he's obviously not going to be a Darvish, but he could top out at a number two if things are going right for him. And they did sign Trevor Williams as a free agent. He could slide into a reliable 4-5 or five role. And they have uh, Alec Mills coming up through the system. He did a pretty good job as a regular starter last year. And Jake Arietta, what can you say about him? Um, Cubs signed him. <laughs> uh, don't forget, they also had Kyle Hendricks. Okay, they have him. He's a legitimate ace, along with a starting lineup that can still kind of bring the thump. And in the back of the bullpen, they still have a what's possibly a slam dunk Hall of Famer. As bad as Craig Kimbrell's tenure with the Cubs started out, he really righted the ship in his last 14 appearances. He gave up only two runs in 12 and two-thirds innings, struck out 26. That's over 18 strikeouts per nine. He did not even walk a single batter in his last eight games. So I think the Cubs might actually make more noise than it looked like they were going to make when they started out the offseason trying to make everybody available in trade. Actually, Cincinnati had a really big loss, too, in Trevor Bauer. Not that they were going to be a top contender this year, but there was a possibility. They were slightly over 500 last year. There was a possibility that if they could have kept them on somehow, kind of made the move up. But now they've kind of stepped back into irrelevance. So if anything, i say from the margins, the Reds actually had the biggest loss. Milwaukee, picking up Colton Wong, probably did the best.
0: Stu, you're our renaissance man, a person who can take in the <laughs> globe in one fell swoop. Give us all the rest. Who's the best of the rest in terms of the off-season and the worst of the rest?
1: Well, in the NL West, the Padres added three major league starters and two strong utility men without gutting their farm system. The Dodgers adding Bauer doesn't hurt at all. Not impressed by what Arizona's done. But, of course, the worst offseason probably from any team in the last 10 years is Colorado's. It's just a tire fire over there, and I feel terrible for their fans. The AL East, I'd say Toronto, adding George Springer and Marcus Semien is a huge, huge move for them. But I love Tampa's starting pitcher additions. Rich Hill, Chris Archer, Colin McHugh, Michael Waka. I just think all those guys in a place like Tampa where they have a good defense and they know what they're doing around helping pitchers do what they do best is a big impact move. So I call it a draw in the AL East. Mm -hmm. To echo Tom's concerns about the AL West, it doesn't seem like anybody wants to win. The Angels added Rysel Iglesias, the reliever, which is a move I do like, and a couple of starting pitchers, including Jose Quintana and Alex Cobb, although those guys aren't really starters. and And the thing about the Angels is that they have a terrible record of keeping pitchers healthy anyhow. As far as uh, Oakland, Seattle, Texas, I'm not really impressed by what any of them have done. Houston sort of appears to be in a holding pattern. I don't see how they're going to replace Springer, what he gave them. They still have a lot of talent, but it seems like right now they're sort of treading water a little bit.
0: Any anticipated surprise moves coming down in spring training, or do you think the big uh, decisions have been made?
1: A lot of players on sign still. Right, Um, Jackie Bradley Jr., uh, Cole Hamels, Brett Gardner, Yassel Puig, Joe Jokic, of course, Edwin Encarnacion. And there are a lot of good relievers in their 30s who are still unsigned.
4: I think once it became clear that spring training was going to start on time, there was more clarity on roster sizes and rules. The free agent signing really did accelerate. There are very few really good ones available. I mean, There there may be some numbers, Mm -hmm. but as of this morning, of the 55 free agents projected to achieve one or better war this year, 49 of them are signed.
1: It seems to me that in some cases, I think a little reality therapy is needed. I think Jackie Bradley Jr. still wants a four-year contract, and I really am having a hard time seeing that one.
0: Finally, we take our last bites. Each of our baseball buffs will offer one last delicious morsel. Andy, what's your last bite?
2: All right. Well, Robin Ventura might be channeling his inner Rodney Dangerfield at this point in his life. Before he reached the majors, Ventura was a star at Oklahoma State in the 80s. He never graduated and left the school without a degree. Last January, Ventura officially joined Oklahoma State's baseball team as a coach. Ventura, who had a 58-game hitting streak in Oklahoma back in 1988, is pursuing a Bachelor of Arts degree that he left unfinished. Ventura says that the team's current players call him Thornton Mellon Dangerfield's character in Back to School, in 1986 movie with a similar premise, Mellon was a successful millionaire who never graduated from college. Ventura made over $67 million in the majors and never graduated from college. So for years, Ventura and his family made annual visits to Oklahoma State to tailgate football games with his old Cowboys teammates and former OSU pitching coach Tom Holliday, whose son coincidentally is now the head coach. So we were joking about maybe I'd come back and coach, but they already had enough coaches, including retired Matt Holiday working as a volunteer assistant coach. His former coach suggested, there's a way, but you'll have to be a student. Ventura gave it some thought and thought, sure, most guys do this in their 20s, but let's do it for a year and see what happens. So he moved to Stillwater, Oklahoma in January 2020 and got right into it. Until the baseball season got cut short after 18 games due to COVID shutdowns. Completing his bachelor's will take another year or so, and he'll be around for the season, COVID permitting, and possibly into the 2022 campaign. Even before the shutdown, he was taking mostly virtual classes. I was trying to do it where I wouldn't be the creepy 53-year-old guy with a backpack on, (laughs) he joked. And has enjoyed a variety of classes, unlike what was available to him his first time around, like the science of beer making. I'm not going to be a physicist or anything, but between the three or four classes I have a semester and working with the team, I'm busy and happy. I love being at Oklahoma State, and I wouldn't have done it anywhere else, and I wouldn't have gone anywhere else to coach. Back to school. (laughs) Stu?
1: Well, few people thought Don Sutton was a Hall of Famer when he was active. His highest Cy Young award finish was third. He was fourth once and fifth three times. He led the league once in ERA and once in shutouts. Only once did he win 20 games. Somebody more famous was usually pitching in the same rotation as Sutton, but he outlasted nearly all of them. Good work habits, uh, strong mechanics, superb command, and the ability to occasionally scuff a baseball without being caught allowed him to pitch seemingly forever. His 756 starts are still third on the all-time list, and he won 324 games. And he was not just a compiler. Four times Sutton led his league in the fewest walks and hits per inning, and five times he struck out more than 200 batters. He was deservedly elected to the Hall of Fame in 1998. Now, the World Series was not Sutton's best showcase, but he helped five teams get to that stage, especially late in his career. The 81 Astros, the 82 Brewers, and the 86 Angels don't get to the playoffs without Sutton's key contributions, to say nothing of his work for the 66 and 73 Dodgers. Sutton died last month at age 75. In latter years, he was a beloved fixture on Atlanta broadcasts, and to quote Warren Zivon, his hair was perfect. He
2: did have a hell of a head of hair.
3: Well, the last year will be remembered for all the Hall of Famers we lost, star players in their prime 50, 60 years ago. But recently the game lost a young man, 58-year-old Pedro Gomez, a longtime ESPN journalist who died unexpectedly on February 7th. He's been highly praised as a decent, humble man who was a mentor to many young journalists and a friendly sort to players and fans everywhere he went. His wife, Sandy, was unaware of his mentoring until hearing from numerous writers who had been helped by Pedro. And that includes ESPN's Howard Bryant, who told the story of his days covering Bay Area high school sports for the Oakland Tribune as a young man, but getting called up to sub for the A's beat writer for a few games in 1993. When Bryant joined a group of writers and manager Tony Russa's office, La Russa jumped on Brian for a factually incorrect headline to a story about Anais' loss the day before. In Brian's account of events, while La Russa was unloading on him, a voice interrupted the manager. Jesus Christ, Tony, you know we don't write the headlines. The story is right. Leave the kid alone. Why are you embarrassing him? And it was Pedro, whom I didn't know, never had met, and who worked for the San Jose Mercury News, a rival paper. This was the kind of person he was, a room full of vets, watched a rookie reporter get savaged by a Hall of Fame manager, and only one stood up. Gomez continued to mentor Bryant, and the two became close friends. And it's a shame we've now lost Gomez, among all the others who have contributed so much to the game.
1: Yeah.
4: Chuck? Well, I guess I'll be the fire breather today. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Another Hall of Fame season has come and gone, with all the same arguments raging about the same two guys who the stat lines say were among the best in history, and of course, they didn't make it in again this year. Everyone thinks they know the reason why, but let's be real. Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens not being in the Hall is not only because they were alleged steroid users. If steroids were the one thing keeping players out, then Pudge Rodriguez, Jeff Bagwell, and Mike Piazza would not be in the Hall of Fame either. These three guys were all widely suspected of or even admitted to being steroid users. No, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens are not in the Hall of Fame because writers don't like them and because they are suspected steroid users. Both these guys are among the top 10 greatest players in history. But writers can't say, I'm not voting for them because they were mean to me in the clubhouse. No, no, that would make writers look like idiots. But they can get on their high horse and say, oh, well, he cheated the game, so I can't in good conscience vote him in. It's the perfect cover. Being mean to writers is also why Bonds and Clemens are identified with steroids, while those users who made it in are not, even though in some cases there's even more of a smoking gun for them than for Bonds or Clemens. And not for nothing, this is also why Alex Rodriguez won't be voted in, but David Ortiz probably will. Writers hate A-Rod because they think he's a flaming douche, but they love Big Poppy because he's <laughs> Big poppy. so I guess we'll see next year.
0: Oh, these last bites were so yummy for the tummy. However, for now, baseball buffet must close down. We'll revisit it next month when we grab a fresh plate. By then, we should have a better impression if winning the offseason will have anything at all to do with winning actual baseball games.